Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, what's the point of Hamlet? Your teacher is Hugh Griffiths, Chair of English at the University of Sydney and author of the book Shakespeare's Body Parts. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday. Hugh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Let me play you this. It's Laurence Olivier, of course. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Yeah, Lawrence Olivia, doing what I guess is Shakespeare's most famous sequence of lines. What's the bard trying to tell us in those lines? Well, it's all about Hamlet's question, isn't it? It's a a question that he has about his life, but also um, about how he's facing this intractable problem that he has um, and the overwhelming suffering that he's feeling um, because his uncle has killed his father and married his mother. It's a big problem, really. So what he seems to be contemplating is what in Shakespeare's period would have been called self-slaughter. Um, so killing himself, suicide is the word we'd use, but not, not Shakespeare wouldn't. That's an 18th century medical term. But what stops him... Sorry, self-slaughter is the term for suicide at yeah, the time. Yeah, right? it's a kind of moral thinking about the same act, really. Suicide's a kind of medical, psychological way of thinking about suicide, which comes in with the 18th century. But really, we're in a moral world with Hamlet. and um, What's right, what's wrong. And what stops him committing self-slaughter is this imagination of what is it that happens once you're dead? And he's really got kind of a radical uncertainty about that. He says, you know, in that sleep of death, what dreams may come must give us pause. So he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He doesn't know what the afterlife involves and and is worried that it might involve something unexpected. Yes, there's a kind of real doubt and uncertainty, um, totally unsure about what happens to you after you're dead. And so he says, this should give us pause. Must give us pause. And that's the question as well. So he's questioning this. It's not a kind of certainty at all. Hmm. This is the version we are so familiar with. It's not the only version, is it? It's not. So Hamlet was probably performed in 1600, but it was first published in a printed form in 1603. And... If we were to listen to the words of this really famous speech uh, as it's printed in that book, I think we'd be very surprised. So instead of to be or not to be, that is the question, we get to be or not to be, aye, there's the point. And for us, I guess, as modern readers, we're kind of thinking, well, what's the difference between a question and a point? And I think actually there's a kind of huge difference. And the difference can tell us quite a lot about um, what's going on in the writing of the play and in the period that it's set. I mean, first of all, that is very jarring, I think, for us. So we're not expecting it, the word point. We kind of think, well, question's going to come next, but it doesn't. But it's also jarring because it tells us something about Hamlet we're not used to hearing. So we think about him as questioning, um, as always doubting, as sceptical, philosophical. Um, uh, But a point is very emphatic. um, And the rest of the speech continues really in that vein as well. Um, So in the version that we have, the one that we know, I suppose, the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. It's really, again, all about doubt, unknowable. What is there when we get there? But in the version, the first version that's printed, it says, for in that dream of death, when we're awaked, 
and born before an everlasting judge from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. So we still get the idea of an afterlife, which is an undiscovered country. Nobody's ever going to come back from it. But in the first printed version, it's not a place that Hamlet is in any doubt about what happens when you get there. He knows that when you get there, you're going to face your maker and he's going to have some kind of judgment over you. You're either damned or you're happy. Mm -hmm. um, it's very different from the radical doubt that we're kind of used to, I think. It's, it's much more kind of a traditionally religious view, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's a kind of seemingly to us a much more kind of conservative religious view that's very sure of what happens to you after you're dead. Okay. Well, now, we'll come back to that idea of, of maybe something's changed about the way religion's talked about between these different versions of the play. But explain to us this whole idea of the quartos and why, why there are so many different editions with slightly different language. Yeah, so we call this first version, printed in 1603, the first quarto, and that just refers to the size of it. It's about the size of a paperback, and first, because it's the first. Um, and really, when we think about the early texts of Shakespeare when they're first printed, we have to think about them in a process. They're not a fixed form. So there's a kind of complicated process going on where scripts and manuscripts move from the writer or usually writers, collaborative writers, to the playhouse, maybe to the censor that we call the master of the revels, and then sometimes occasionally to the printing house as well. And at any time in that process, some changes could be made often really out of the control of the author, really nothing to do with the author in some ways because they're out of his hand or their hands and moved around all these different kind of players, these people with different investments in it. So that when we get a printed text, it's really just a snapshot of one moment where changes might have occurred as people intervene in the texts and change it. I mean, most radically, there's some people who suggest that maybe some of the editions we've got is simply a jobbing actor. He may have had one of the minor roles. He's gone to a printer and whispered in his ear and said, look, I've memorised the play. Why don't I just tell it to you? You can type it out and we'll both make a bit of money. Yeah, so that's one early theory, I guess, about about this play, about this printed version of the play, is that it's what we call a bad quarto. Um, and that is just that, a memorised text, um, really sold on the black market to a printing house. Um, and early theories even identified the actor, or the, at least the part that the actor played, which was Marcellus, because those parts seem to be accurate between the three different <laughs> versions that we have. He's remembered his own lines yeah, pretty but, well. But forgotten everybody else's. There's, there's kind of flaws in that theory, because actually the the changes between the plays are really consistent. So, for example, a well-known figure, well-known silly character, I guess, in the play, Polonius, is called Carambis all the way through, Quarto One. Um, and also, there's kind of plot differences which are kind of consistent as well. So, for example, right to the end of the version we know very well, the figure of Gertrude is really a kind of ambivalent character right to the end. We don't know if she's had anything to do with the murder. We don't know the extent to which she's on Hamlet's side by the end of the play. Whereas in Quarto One, she clearly is. Like she's um, uh, conspiring with Hamlet to make the, the final revenge all take place. So there is something quite consistent about this early version. Um, and one theory is that it's a kind of adaptation and that even though it's the first printed version, it actually might be later than the ones that we're familiar with. Um, and it may have been adapted perhaps for a touring company. Because so it's a bit shorter, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's quite a lot shorter. Um, some might say mercifully shorter, really, <laughs> given the four-hour length or whatever of the, of the, of the whole thing. Um, 
And that, I think, when we think about it as an adaptation, about deliberate changes possibly being made, either by the company or by an individual, or even perhaps even by Shakespeare, um, then I think some interesting things come into view. So if it is an adaptation, what kind of adaptation is it? And what different things might it be trying to tell us? So like we saw in the to be or not to be speech, where question is exchanged for point, that it is a play that's a lot more sure of itself, the first quarter. It's quicker. It gets to the revenge in a really punchy way. Um, uh, the world in which quarter one Hamlet lives is a much more certain world, one that he knows where after he's dead, there will be a moment, a point, a point in time, a moment where he'll be judged. And it all works towards thinking about that moment rather than the more complex, perhaps, um, scepticism of the Hamlet that we're familiar with who is obsessed with the afterlife, so, and the players as well. So, you know, the, the thing about the skull or whether Ophelia should be buried in, in hallowed ground or not because she committed suicide. The play really worries about what happens to you after you're dead. It's its main focus, really. Um, and those elements are in the first quarto, but it really hones in on that moment of judgment rather than having these kind of endless uh, questions, mm -hmm. I guess. Now, that could be a response to needing a, a shorter, sharper play for touring. It could also be a response to the, the changes in how religion was played in England at the time. Yeah, so the, the Hamlet at the, in quarter one, at the end of quarter one, he says, heaven, receive my soul. The version we have, the rest is silence. And that shows you this wavering between a conservative view of what happens to you after you're dead, heaven, receive my soul, or the rest is silence. I have no idea what's going to happen after I'm dead. And really it speaks to a period where these kinds of religious beliefs around the afterlife changed and could change in a lifetime with really disturbing effect. So you could one minute be say, saying prayers for the dead um, under a kind of Catholic regime um, uh, and be kind of allowed to do that, you know, praying for your relatives as they die that will enable them to get to heaven. And the next minute, if you even think that you might be able to do that, then you're up in front of the courts for heresy. Um, so these kind of shifting beliefs around what happens to you after you're dead are exactly what's um, uh, really at play in the kind of big political shifts in the 16th and early 17th century in England. And it seems to me that these versions of Hamlet that we have whether it's the conservative version or the more sceptical version that we know, it really is just evidence of, of really the kind of, I guess, the deep interest that people would have had in these questions in the time. And this version may be less likely to get us into trouble. Some touring manager may have said that. Might they not have? Well, I mean, that's, that's one potential answer, isn't it? Yes, that in order to tour it, um, perhaps to uh, a less urban audience, mm -hmm. it needed a more conservative uh, reading. I mean, another might be if it really was an actor taking it to a printing house that actor wouldn't have been able to think in those kind of radical questioning terms. Perhaps he thought in those very clear terms about what happens. So, you know, there's a speech here about what happens to you after you're dead. Well, of course, you get judged. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I sense that you don't think the Marcellus theory is the, the greatest theory, but it's the most attractive. It's There's something fabulous about the idea that a minor character goes and does the dirty on Shakespeare, gets his own lines word perfect, but mucks up everyone else's. Yeah, well, whether it's right or not, I think that story or the possibility of that story Story reveals something about the really febrile, exciting world that these plays lived in, and the way that they moved from you know one writer's hand into the big company of the of the theatre itself, and then into a print house, and then into people's hands as a text to be read. And that 
complicated shifting around of a text, um, inevitably in a period like this, changes are going to be made. Mm. Uh, But of course, for Shakespeare scholars like yourself, this is a very exciting theme because you all argue the toss about, well, which quarto is right, which is the most accurate to Shakespeare's intention. Yes, I guess so. Yeah. Or the the exciting thing for us is that there's so many. So there's just endless things to talk about and write about, I suppose. I think it's maybe a frustrating thing for for, for actors, like which text should we read? Mm. read So do you sometimes go to Bell Shakespeare and want to stand up in the middle of Act 3 and say, I don't think that's the right word. I would love Bell Shakespeare to do the quarto one, I think. Well, yes. we, we'd leave the theatre quicker, which is, is often a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but also it'd be exciting to see a version of Hamlet that was that kind of fast and dynamic as, as it can be. And, and it would shock the ear in an interesting way because you, you say these lines are so familiar that we all know which word comes next. Question, not point. So it would catch your ear. It would be exciting. Often you're in a, in a production of Hamlet in Sydney and you'll hear people saying behind you, oh, I know that line, I know that line. It's like Casablanca when you just watch it because the lines are so recognisable. In fact, it's one of the hard things for actors, isn't it? Because Hamlet in particular can seem just like a sequence of quotations. That's right. And, and doing it, doing it, the, doing the early text, I guess, would shock us out of that, um, those assumptions that we have and actually make us think again about those questions. That it, so even though it's more conservative, it actually makes us think um, in relation to the other, other versions of the play, like what is, what is being asked. Yeah, just fascinating. Hugh, thank you so much. There's Hugh Griffiths. He's chair of English at the University of Sydney and author of Shakespeare's Body Parts. You can, of course, revisit his self-improvement Wednesday online, abc.net.au slash Sydney. You can subscribe free to the Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast at the same spot. Uh, We'll take a break next week, but we'll be back after that talking philosophy with Dr Tim Dean. That's Self-Improvement Wednesday for another week.